0: This is a Sunday talk by Todd Corbett titled Compassionate Attention recorded May 20th, 2012 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. That little bow that we do at the end lots of reasons for that little bow. I mean, one of the primary reasons maybe is that what Joel describes every week is that there have been over eons uh, countless folks, mystics, that have sacrificed their lives to get these teachings through to others and amidst uh, sometimes a lot of persecution. And so we revere them for their courage and willingness to do that. But also on a deeper level, we bow we are bowing to the reality that we actually are this reality in which all of this is arising moment by moment it's a a gesture of gratitude and we discover that the gesture of gratitude really is a way that we discover this reality through gratitude itself. Gratitude is a manifestation of this reality. We think we are appreciating. We discover through gratitude itself this enlightenment, this uh, divinity, Brahman. We often refer to the ultimate as consciousness itself at the center. And we like this term because it it doesn't have too much uh, extra stuff associated with it. Nevertheless, we read the mystics, we find all of these names. So we use them interchangeably. But consciousness is a great way of getting a sense of it because it doesn't have a lot of baggage. And we sort of know what consciousness is until we start thinking about it. But we know what it is kind of innately. Mystics are always saying that you are consciousness itself. This is your very nature. You are enlightened. You are enlightenment. And Even still, even though they say this, you know, you go, well, okay, great. I don't feel enlightened. This doesn't make any sense. Why do they say this? What we discover as we do a little bit of practice and we listen to the mystics a little more, we discover that knowledge, any kind of knowledge, is sort of a veil to this reality. So if we have even the idea that we're enlightened, it's a veil to our own enlightenment. Enlightenment. It is consciousness itself awakening to the truth. And this is something that we all can recognize. If the conditions are right, we often do recognize. But in the next moment, something happens that covers it over and we don't even know what we go up. what was that holy smokes i think i need a drink <laughs> so this business of knowledge is interesting because whatever we believe is the reality is actually the veil to that reality even if we think we know what Enlightenment is. If we think we know, we don't. Shankara, a great Hindu sage of the 6th century and the father of the Advaita school of non-duality, puts it this way. He says, no matter what a deluded man may think he is perceiving, he is really seeing Brahman and nothing else but Brahman. He sees Mother of Pearl and imagines that it is silver. He sees Brahman and imagines that it is the universe. But this universe, which is superimposed upon Brahman, is nothing but a name. So in other words, whatever we know becomes a veil. If we know this is a hand, we can't see what's really here. That really might sound totally crazy, except that you see we're superimposing an idea on something which is not an idea. It is not an idea. So when you look at this, what do you see? A hand. I see a hand. But is it a hand? It's fingers and skin. <laughs> There you go. It's a visual image. In fact, even that is too much. Because we really don't know. If you look, I mean, we have, we have a context for everything. Yeah, a visual image. Then that's good. That's helpful. Because it's, it's broken away from the usual way that we think of it. It's all oh, It's a hand. So we kind of uh, digress a little bit. And we go, oh, that's a visual image. But even that, you see, we don't really know what we're looking at. And the very fact that we think we are looking at something up here has a certain element of delusion embedded in it. And we're going to get to this. Everything that we think about this, hand, image, fist, they're all names. Names, just as Shankar says. Nothing but a name. It's the the universe being superimposed on Brahman. What is here prior to that? In other words, every sound that we hear is Brahman. Sound, it's Brahman, another name. Even the sound of this voice. So there's a kind of a unity involved when we're talking about Brahman. Everything has this kind of sameness quality to it. We have names, perceptions, images, stories. So the spiritual path then, you know, if we're saying that we're already enlightened, then the spiritual path really is a, is a journey from here to where? To here. But it's a journey that we're taking vertically. It's not a journey outward. We're looking here. Right here, in this moment, what is arising? and we discern, we examine our experience. If we we struggle to understand enlightenment, we are going to be perpetually and always frustrated by that struggle to understand. Because understanding Brahman consciousness is not possible. Because every movement of the mind to give it a name, to hold it is a way that the mind divides up. Brahman separates. And Brahman is one whole. without division. All distinctions are purely imaginary. This whole thing about this getting discouraged though, we're trying to understand it. We're getting discouraged, and then the teacher will say something like, "We'll go into your discouragement, because that is enlightenment itself." And then it's like, "Oh, no, that's really discouraging. You know, you don't want to hear that. I'm already frustrated." But that's it. You see, that's that vertical movement. This right now. What are you experiencing right now? What are you experiencing right now? whatever it is allow that to be present just as it is especially if it's a it's an emotion that we don't like don't want when we don't like something we are constantly turning away from it and that movement to turn away is what divides it up we can't we can't be with what we are always turning away from and what we discover is that when we don't turn away and we actually allow sadness Anger, fear, to just be present. Anxiety, allow it to be present in a loving way, a kind way. It's no longer a problem for us. Resistance ceases to be resistance when we are no longer resisting it. But this business of frustration is it's something that comes up in spiritual circles a lot. People feel frustrated that I've practiced for 20 years. And, the, and these Tibetan guys are saying, you're already enlightened. And we just feel a little crazy. And Joel used to tell this story a lot. I think he probably still tells it So I haven't heard it lately. But it's a story of uh, there was a, a monk that was in uh, in training in the monastery. They had been in a, a long retreat. And after the retreat, uh, the monk came out and was with the teacher. They were just kind of walking under the stars. And, and the teacher asked the student, so, have you recognized uh, your enlightenment yet? And the student goes, well, no. was <laughs> kind of a, Frustration in his voice. And the teacher goes, well, you look up at those stars up there. And the student looks up and goes, yeah? And he goes, you hear those dogs barking off in the distance? And, and the monk goes, yeah. And the teacher goes, that's it. And in that moment, the monk totally woke up, and he's a great teacher today. And anyway, so the reason I bring this up is that uh, the last time I remember Joel giving this teaching, when he was teaching the practitioners group, I remember one. Of, there was like an exclamation in the group from one of the, one of the students. There, it was like. Oh I hate that story. <laughs> <laughs> so no. It's like I've heard that story so many times and I've listened to the dogs and I've heard the stars. <laughs> so so one thing we discover as we go along on the path though is that when the self, you know, me, when the self pursues enlightenment, there is built-in frustration. There is frustration. And there's a good reason for this. The self doesn't actually, truly want to discover enlightenment. Not really. Because the self is in it for the self. Not in it for enlightenment. Enlightenment. Enlightenment is the dissolution of the self. Truly speaking, it's the end of the self. But we still want to escape this kind of chronic, uncomfortable sense of being separate. So we're steadily trying to achieve enlightenment because we can't stand the self. But yet, at the same time, we love our We don't want to lose it. So this is something we grapple with early on the path, and after a while we really do discern that the self is not our enemy. It is not a problem. It's not something to escape. To escape our suffering is to escape our ignorance, to turn away from our ignorance. To turn away from our ignorance is to turn away from our enlightenment, from our truth. The story of I is our enlightenment. It's just presenting itself in a funny way. It's just, it's, it's this richness. Put another way, the, the, the story of I is our path. Our path is the sense of self and all the ways that it arises. All of the dis- discomfort, all of the frustration, all of the feelings of ineptitude, all of it. These are all showing you something. Now, it's not that we need to do psychological work necessarily with these things. It's that we need to allow them just to be there. Just as they are, and rather than reacting to them so much, with a kindness to allow it to be there and to see that it is just conditioning. And you know, at first on the path, it's not so easy to do that because we've got a lot of issues to deal with. We've got a mind that's just running all over the place and we just don't know what to do with it. And and it doesn't let us settle down and look at anything. But once we practice for a while. We do get a, a kind of a, a clarity, a, a kind of a, at least periodically, not always. But we get a kind of a settled mind, a stable attention, and then we can begin to really look at some of the some of the things that come up you know, in day-to-day life. You start to notice uh, all the ways that we. Suffer and we are willing to be there with that suffering and with the resistance to that suffering, however, that plays out. So, Zen Master Dogen tells us this he says, The discovery of truth is in the discernment of the false. You can know what false is, whereas what is, you can only be. That's really an important point. We're not really trying to find our enlightenment. Rather, we're trying to see how it is that we are eluding it. In our identification with mind states and all the rest. Um, Meister Eckhart has a thing. He says, The smallest image hides all of God. Mm. The smallest image. Because we focus on that, our irritation, our frustration, our sorrow. and all the rest of what is is hidden so the path then is to open your heart to what troubles you to feel it and to allow it and to do that it's really really helpful to have a committed daily practice some kind of meditation work with precepts work with sitting meditation One thing about um, our ignorance is that we can usually discern it. It's sort of like, whenever we suffer, we are experiencing some degree of ignorance, and it's directing your attention. After you've practiced a while, you begin to know every time you're suffering, this is something to look at, because it's showing you your own ignorance. Yes. I heard a statement on
1: TV, it was... I don't even know what context, but it made me, I thought about it later, and it kind of made sense, uh, it, it, in, to my, I'm sure it's not a, a mystical statement, but it said, the fact that you understand something doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change anything. So there has to be a point of doing even everything you're saying, and I hate to use the word doing instead of being, but doing something about it to... You recognize that that you you can say, okay, that's the way it is, but isn't there another... Okay, so here is really the
0: point. Let me see if I can make this a little clearer. Whatever arises, if we allow ourselves to be with it, like we're feeling sad, we're feeling sorrow, we allow ourselves to sit with the sorrow, and not just once, but, but with repeated practice. We begin to recognize, after a while, that the sorrow there's certain certain qualities about it. It's not really understanding, uh, although you could say on a certain level it is understanding. You're understanding, for example, that it's you know one thing that for myself I noticed early on with doing experiencing grief was that it's all about me. Now what about this loved one that's gone? Why am I doing all this? And it's all about me. Well then I got a little deeper into it and I began to discover that, well, yeah, it's all about me, but it's love. It's this love. I love this person. It's gone. And so it's, even though it feels dreadful, it's, it's a warmth. It's a, it's a sweetness. It's a, it's a good thing. It's not bad. But, you know, we tend to, we have a feeling like sadness and we tend to go, oh my God, I can't bear to look. And yet, you see, by not looking, it becomes something that it really isn't. We miss its reality. The other piece of this is that as we gaze into sadness and into the, the the sensations of it, the the emotional, the way that it presents, at some point we begin to discover that it's not even emotion. We, I mean, through through um, intensive practice, we discover like energetic fields that are moving through and they're all transient. It's like it's showing itself in this moment. It's gone. And then this next moment. And the next moment. And when we see it in that way, we begin, it's like self moves out and there's more just a direct seeing of our experience. And it has a transformative effect which I can't describe. I don't know what it takes place. But I do know that just by being present with it, we are no longer resisting it. There is a warmth that develops. And we feel warmth. Instead of feeling, we see this person that died, the image arises, and we feel warmth. This, this is my experience. And this is after horrendous, several horrendous uh, deaths and circumstances. And it, was a, it, it totally changed my way of looking at, at sadness. Not that, you know, I, I wish anyone to have sadness in and love. And, and you, know, I love all of the, the, the people that arise in my life. I love them just as they are. but if they vanish back into the void, then I love them for what they are and how they manifest, And I'll certainly feel sadness. But it's not the kind of sadness that I used to feel. This is a deeper, richer it's a recognition of the wholeness and the
1: oneness. Uh, did that help you? Yeah. Okay. I, did, I wasn't just even thinking about the statement. I didn't come to any real conclusion. Okay. I had never... It made sense, though, because even in conditioned life, it, you, once you see something, if you don't do anything about it, then whatever process oh, yeah. happens afterwards, you just suffer through it if you're not going to make any changes.
0: Exactly. So so what I'm speaking about is a process of attention. And, and certainly there are going to be things that you're going to be doing about, you know, There's always things that you're doing in your life. You know, if you need to take take Aunt Nellie to the store or whatever, you do that. But that doesn't mean that you're not doing this contemplative work as well.
1: Even that and attempting to do that is part of the work. It is. It needs to be done.
0: Exactly, exactly. And the bottom line with practice is really seeing is all we can do ultimately. When, when you really get into this, you discover this for yourself firsthand there's really nothing you can't understand it you know if you try to get a conceptual grasp on it you are lost you will never you will you will get conceptual grasps but they will always be fragmented and they will never they will never bring you the kind of true understanding conceptual understanding will not do it for you
1: um. Yes. I didn't get the last part of this a little bit ago. You said we're not really trying to get enlightened, we are trying to...
0: We're trying to discern what it is that is is obstructing that enlightenment. In other words, when we feel, for example, um, like what we were talking about with sadness. If we feel sad and we never allow the sadness to be there, then it always is an obstacle to us. We can't actually see it for what it is. When we finally are able to be with our sadness in a full and complete way, sadness is light. It's not, it's not an obstacle. It, it shines light on our experience. It's, it's the enlightened part of enlightenment. It, it opens us. We we have more spaciousness. So So it's the... It's the things in the world that we aren't recognizing fully and completely continue to be things to us. We hold beliefs about everything. And beliefs and names veil reality, just as Shankar talked about. That by holding a belief, whenever you form a belief about anything, you're forming an element of the sense of self. The sense of self is an elaborate belief system. But it's not just a bunch of ideas. There's something deep in it. Emotion. Attachment. And it's deep. So it's not just ideas... When you have a belief about anything, you know, the sun, the sun rises in the east, You know if you believe that, that's great. Well, if the sun ever decided it wanted to rise in the west, you would experience great distress, and great emotional uh, shifts. It, wouldn't, it would be very distressing because we have a very distinct way of holding all of our beliefs. If birds were flying backwards... It would be very distressing to us. So our beliefs are are held in place by a sense that if they are if they start coming apart, then we don't know who we are. We start to worry. Our sense of self comes into question. And that is something that we have always guarded against. So ownership of a belief that is an emotional sense of me. And that is something that we're going to come back to here again uh, in a minute. Beliefs are expectations. We sometimes overlook this. When we hold a belief, we expect things to be a certain way. And when we expect our life to be a certain way, we are bound in grief. Because our life is never the way we want it to be. We want it to be a certain way. It'll be sort of like that, but it will never be like that. It's sort of, it's sort of one of the issues that we are constantly facing. Expectation is grief, ultimately. Without expectation, our perceptions change. The world ceases to be separate from us. It has a quality, a non-dual quality to it. And I'm going to try to illustrate this here in a moment, through a little exercise that we're going to do. We live in a culture that is very dualistic. Our language is dualistic. And if you look at any piece of the way we hold the world, we can see why. And I'm going to just take one element of this. Neuroscience sees our world a certain way. I mean, we go to the ophthalmologist, they fit us with glasses. It's based on a very precise science. If we have a head injury, we go to the neurosurgeon, we can get in there and... Sometimes they can do some wonderful things. This is all based on very uh, precise uh, maps. But we take this to mean that it is somehow the reality. And it's not. In the Neuroscience view of things, we look at a, look at something like, oh, here we go. Look at this. Now, this image of the gong, it goes into your retina, turns upside down in your retina, it moves back through the uh, optic tracts into the lateral geniculate bodies of thalamus, and then on, on both sides. So, that's what's happening right now. We're going to believe this, okay? Okay, so on both sides, lateral geniculate body, thalamus, back into the occipital lobe, and voila, we see a gong, like a magic trick or something. <laughs> well, let me ask you: Do you experience a an occipital lobe when you see the gong? How about lateral genicular bodies? Absolutely. So, So it's not your experience, so it's something extra. So if you try to think about that brain and all of those structures, they're all arising in consciousness rather than the other way around. I always think, you know, the medical folks always kind of put it out there that that the awareness is somehow a product of the brain. But you know, I've, i I've, I'm working as a nurse, and I've in the past I've had the opportunity to just kind of sit around and chit chat with the neurosurgeon when it was kind of quiet, and I would ask this one guy who's amenable to all this. I would ask him, well. So, what is awareness? And he would just kind of go, well, at <laughs> first he would go, well, I can explain it. And he would like start, and then after he'd kind of gone through all of this stuff, he'd go, well, you know, I don't really know. <laughs> and they don't know. The science, they, you know, there's all kinds of conjectures and theories, of course. They, these things are all arising in consciousness rather than the other way around. Maps such as the neurosurgeons and the ophthalmologists use are very, very precise, great detail. But they're just like a menu when you go to the restaurant, or a map, a road map. you're driving, you need a map. You don't see the terrain here. This is just a map, right? There's a very big difference between a map and reality. This is sort of something that we get confused about. So let's use this neuroscience model again now. Let's kind of back up through it. Okay. The gong. Do you experience this in your brain? Let's be precise about this now. Is that your experience? Is it in your brain? i not getting any big responses. Let me ask you this. When you look at this, do you see it going upside down in your retina? No. Okay. Now, the, the key question here is this. Do you see two gongs? No. You don't see two gongs. So there's not one in your head and one up here? How can that be? I mean, they're saying that You have one in your brain, right? If you have one in your brain, how are you going to see this one? This is sort of a strange question, and it really uh, warrants some contemplation. If this gong is not anywhere but in your brain, then, how are you seeing anything external to you? You're seeing just one gong, right? It it brings into question this whole business of inner and outer. It's like, is there an outer gong? If there's only one, where is it? Where is it? Right now, the energy of my life. <laughs> it was an image in my mind. It up and now it's there. Yeah, it was an image in your mind, but was that the same as this one? No. Ah, that's interesting. So this gong is arising in a non-dual way.
2: I'm, I'm having a good time looking at this gong and really just... I'm almost imagining as if this whole room, you know, the wall, you and the wall behind it and the gong in your hand is actually all in my brain. It's all inside. So I'm trying to imagine it this way, and then I'm thinking, okay, so is this, and I'm asking this as a question, because I really don't know. I, I, I think I have an answer, but I'm sure it's wrong. So, <laughs> so there's this, I'm going I'm to say, there's this thing out here, there's this gong out here, that's not in my brain, and somehow, the way my vision, and the way my brain processes, the perception of this gong, it makes it appear, out it looks as if the gong's outside. It looks as if it's not happening in my brain. It appears, appears, as if it's outside. What are saying is, directly if I'm wrong, that that's just the way the brain makes it appear, but that's not really how it is. It's no. not really out there.
0: Right, and so what we're trying to do here is we're trying to discern what is it that makes us believe right. the neuroscience model. Because the neuroscience model... Is, is stating that there is one up here, and one in your brain.
2: Alright, I'm going to challenge you just to get clear, okay? It's not the neuroscience model that's making it, that makes it appear that that gong is outside. I mean, babies have experiences that they don't understand, but they very, they very clearly have the experience that there are things outside them that seem threatening or, or, or whatever. I don't know how it is, but definitely they have the experience that this isn't, this is, Away from me, there's a distance or there's separation.
0: Exactly, exactly.
2: No, that's not conceptual.
0: Well, yes, it is. It's learned. As a matter of fact, if you go back to an earlier time in development, when a, in a newborn and a very young infant, they have no discernment between inner and outer at all. There's, I mean, they've done lots of studies on this. And there is no discernment. There is, what we learn, you know, you bite your thumb and then you bite the blank and go, oh. This is me, and that's not me. Right. And that's how it starts, with a very simple movement like that. Which is healthy. Huh? It's healthy to have some Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, you know, we're not, talented. you know, and, and this always is difficult to talk about this because people think, oh, we're poo-pooing the world. We're saying it's bad, but well, we're not. We're actually wanting to know it intimately. And we've always been holding it just a little bit apart from ourselves because We've not been willing to really look at it intimately. So now we're bringing it in and we're looking. And this little, this little exercise is a way to start to break down. It's sort of a model for how meditation works because we don't do it just with this. We do it with all of our experience. You know, you pick up something like this and we go, mystics are saying that there is only God. Doesn't look like God. Doesn't sound like God. Why doesn't it? It's just like what Chankara was saying. Because we superimpose an idea, an attitude, a belief, an emotional attachment onto this in a way that we are only able to see it that way. And so the reality of it eludes us completely. But let's get back to this, this point. If there is only one, where is it? In awareness. Yeah. awareness, yes. Yes. So yes, it's in awareness. But what have we just said? It's an awareness. It's another idea. Where is it really? If we look at our experience, we have these ways of categorizing everything. For example where are you right now? You're in the Green Phoenix. We're in the Green Phoenix. Where's that? Well, it's in Eugene, Oregon, right? It's a new gene. So that tells us what? That's relative. It doesn't really tell us anything. It's a description. It's just like the neuroscience model. Well, okay, so we're, we're in America. Well, it's the same. We can't escape this. We're on the planet Earth. We're in the solar system. We still don't know where we are. The knowledge that we're talking about, experiential knowledge, is immediate and direct. We can know. And as a matter of fact, we know already where we are. We're here. But our mind is so full of stories. We don't know what here is, but... When we just are quiet, we discover where here is. Here, now. It's just this. And then we bring all of this back in and we, we, we see it. And, and so what, what I'm getting at here is we lose that emotional component behind everything that tells us, yes, it's definitely this way. And we see that this is just a story. And so, so the stories and the words and the descriptions are still totally intact, but they don't have all this baggage hanging on the bottom about me and my life and all the rest of the stuff that glues it together and forces us into a narrow view of everything. Yeah, if it's not... In a brain, it must be in consciousness or awareness or whatever we want to call it, but, you know, whatever name we put on it, it never is it. We know what it is that this is when we stop trying. When we stop trying to understand. We drop into a place of just naked recognition. No story, no belief. It's just when all of the deluded aspects fall away, reality just is here. It's already here. And that's why the mystics are always saying this. You are already enlightened. It's already here. Todd?
1: Yeah. Uh, a good example of this, when, when the, name of the young lady said, when I see it out there, is... When, um, now I'm very intrigued with three-dimensional films. They're really neat and exciting. And I think to myself, God, when I'm outside, it's three-dimensional. i it's so great on the screen. <laughs> and that's on a flat screen, and it looks really real. It looks deft in the whole thing. So even on screen, if you're seeing something that really appears to be way in the distance, is still on a flat
0: screen, but it appears. Now that's actually, there's a big clue in that.
1: Well, it's sort of kind of what you're saying. It, this is like the same neuroscience thing is saying about our brains. Exactly. How does the film, film industry is able to do that somehow to simulate that?
0: Yes. Yeah. It's it's quite amazing. I mean, it's on a flat
1: screen. It's not in a depth. Whatever we think is depth.
0: Well, one thing that we can discover through through practicing meditation is we discover that whatever qualities arise are qualities of consciousness itself. Their qualities. For example, you know, it's like when you take a shower and you feel all wet and everything. Consciousness isn't wet. You know, it's just it's it's a it's a sensation. It's a feeling, but the consciousness never becomes wet. And so, it's funny. It's like all of our experiences, like this experience of death. Like you look up here and it's like, oh yeah, that's over there. That is a is a. A sense that is arising in consciousness. This whole thing about depth. You stand on a mountaintop and you look out at the vast... This vista It's beautiful. Clouds, other mountains, green grass down in the valley, and a little bit of rain and a rainbow. It's all arising in consciousness. We go, well, I'm separate from that. Well are you? You are arising in consciousness as well. All of the sense of me is arising in that, just as the rainbow, arising in the same space of awareness. So one thing that hangs us up about all this is we fail to recognize the The mind is very good at creating a kind of solidity to things. And it makes it very possible to, you know, sit down and do your checkbook and, you know, drive your car. Because if you couldn't have that kind of uh, precision with the mind, it would be very um, difficult to do anything functional. So we have this ability to take things which are actually Impermanent and kind of hold it. So, if you, for example, um, stare at an object for a while, like, you know, I just put a cup up on the table and stare at it. Give yourself thirty minutes, and the whole point of the meditation is just going to stare at the cup. Unless you're very, very different than me, within probably ten minutes or so you're not going to actually be looking at a cup. It's going to have changed. It's going to be flipping around. And maybe, it, maybe it will be a cup still, but it will have different qualities. The hand will suddenly be light, whereas it was dark before. It's constant change and shifting. And if you gaze at it long enough, it will really change. If you look at yourself in the mirror, you stare at yourself, and how many people here have done this before? Yeah, you just stare at yourself in the mirror. After a while, you don't know who you're looking at. You don't recognize them. It's constantly changing. And this is a huge clue when you are actually doing practice. You start to realize that everything is very impermanent. There's a whole contrivance being perpetrated in every moment. It's a very wonderful contrivance. We don't want to do away with it, but we want to recognize it. When we recognize impermanence in this way, it's very different from our usual way of seeing impermanence. You know, we think, we have concepts and beliefs about impermanence. You know, how stuff wears out, I'm getting some gray hair, some wrinkles, I'm getting older. That kind of is impermanence, but you see, they're conceptual. This is a direct seeing of impermanence and when we really directly see it at first it's scary because we we really you know if you're on a if you're on a uh, prolonged meditation retreat and this is the subject of the retreat you start seeing the, the transience of everything your thoughts who you think you are is a total contrivance and you see it the whole thing everything is arising and passing away constantly So, this is interesting, because the more you observe impermanence in this way, the more you begin to discover that there is nothing here to be impermanent. You begin to realize that there are no things. Go back to our image of this arising where? In awareness. If you let that gong sit in your mind for a moment, it's coming into being constantly. It never actually becomes anything at all because it's just an image. Well, all of this is that way. And we discover that when we really look into impermanence. And when we see that there is nothing to be impermanent, we are really, in a sense, beginning to recognize what Shankara was talking about, the Brahman. Everything that you see is impermanent, constantly arising and passing away. What is always here? What remains? All things are really things that are showing you Brahman. It's like, hey, look. But we get hung up on the images. Because we believe in permanence. But as we start to see through permanence and we drop into emptiness, things change. The more you see into this empty facade of things, the more comfortable you become with this, the more you begin to recognize there is no self in you or in anyone else. I mean, it's just weird. When you first start seeing this, it comes to you in these crazy ways. It's like you're talking to someone, and it's like you're talking to a cardboard cutout. You see the emptiness. You look into someone's eyes, and it's, you see the emptiness there. My first experience of that was with Joel. I was on a retreat, and, and he was talking, and I glimpsed this quality in his eyes. And after the, after the session, I was outside and I saw him and I walked up to him and I just looked at him. And it was just, it was so obvious there was no one there. No one at all. And I went to my room and cried. Because it was so true. It was so real. But then, you know, you see this thing just opens. If you don't turn away, you see everything is empty. It's all emptiness. But it's all still here. You see, this is emptiness. Perfect. Arising in this moment and passing away. Always fresh. Never actually becoming anything. The world that we see is the world that would exist if it could exist?
2: <laughs>
0: when we get to this point where we really see that we have no self, this is sort of the end of the path. This is what we refer to at the center as kenosis. It's a it's a point where we've emptied ourselves. we nothing more to do. We we, we we don't care about enlightenment anymore. We don't care about anything. But yet, we still go to work. And for me, I show up on retreat still. Went on for years. This kinosis is uh, not a complete extinction of the self. It is really a point where the self just sort of vacates periodically, but it keeps coming back. It, it vacates and then it's back. And then it's, it's very. Uh, it's very profound in some ways, and sometimes it feels dreadful. Sometimes it's like, oh, I just want to go back to you how know, I used to see things. This is scary, you know, because the self is still there. But then, when the self is gone, it's like, oh, this is so wonderful. And back anyway, this went on for um, years, and then there's really nothing to do at this point because. Kenosis, kind of the definition of kenosis is that you're done. You just sort of like you know it's over. Nothing to do. And and it's in kenosis. It's really a, a, the only place, the only time in your life in which enlightenment, true waking up, is possible, is when you're just not trying to get anything anymore. And then. Something happens, some little thing. And the mystics uh, always, there's thousands of little scenarios in which people wake up, like the one I gave you earlier about the the guy and the dogs barking. Or there could be the the Zen master blows out a candle just at at a crucial moment. And the guy is in kenosis and he wakes up. Why? I have no idea. There are no ideas that can really describe it. Although Joel does a pretty good job, I'm not sure I can really go there. It's a mystery to me. But there is one thing that I can say about the entire path when I look back on it. And that is, despite all the discernment that you do, no matter how much discernment, no matter how many practices no matter how diligent you've been, the one thing that matters more than anything else is kindness. It's compassion. Compassion for yourself. Compassion for others. Zen Master Dogen says Fools look at themselves as if looking at another. Realized persons look at others and see themselves. The oneness of self and other is the reality realized by the Buddhists. Hmm. Are there any comments or questions? Mark?
2: Um, I thought that the first quote that you shared in the domain that quote, but essentially, what you're saying is you don't get truth, you sort of uncover, you know, you get rid of falseness or, or the, the, the blockages of truth. Something like that. Yes. And uh, it reminded me of um, another teaching where um, people are familiar with the golden rule that Jesus said, Do unto others. I said, you, you would have others do unto you. It's a compassionate, you know, teaching. Um, but he actually, I think, got that from an old Jewish scholar named Hillel who said, do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. <laughs> well, to good. me. As soon as you said the Dovin quote, I thought of the Hillel quote. Uh-huh. If you're saying you're not trying to do something, you're trying to undo something or not do ill. Don't don't cover that. Don't you know, you can't grasp this. You can uncover this. It's almost like a moral teaching that was yeah. in correspondence with your teaching. Yes.
0: Whatever. Yeah. And they're saying the same thing, but but it's good. It's nice to see these things from from many different angles. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, we have a lot of ways of confusing ourselves. <laughs> and the path is, is really, <laughs> I, you see. And this is the thing. This is the beauty of the whole thing: is that the path is about. It's, it's, the path is through all of that. I mean, if, if there's something that's not troubling us, that's not our path. Path is what's a problem for you. It's what, what creates your sorrows and, you know, you're grasping, you're wanting things to be other than they are. Whatever that is, that's your path. And that's what, what is calling you. It's wanting your attention. It's wanting your kindness. Yeah. I think you would do me the favor if you gave an example of going into grief
1: and not turning away
0: from grief. Yeah. Going into your sadness, and that that's very comfortable to me, and I understand
1: that. But I wonder about things that are a little bit more um, on the side of aversion or aggression. Yeah. And going into doesn't seem really helpful to go into anger. <laughs>
0: Well, it's, it, it actually is useful if you can really, when you see yourself being angry, sometimes you see yourself just totally losing it. You're just in a rage, you know, just ah, ah, you know. Then <laughs> a little one, then just a little, a little anger. Anyway, you you see it and then say. It totally got away from you, and then that evening you, you're looking back at your day, and you're looking at that. Evening. So to open to that would be to to really look at, try to feel. You know, when I, whenever I say this, I don't mean to sit down and try to understand, figure it out. I mean sit for a little bit, and then bring up the image of what happened and how it happened, and see if you can see all the ways that you resist even doing this, even looking. Because it's those little things that are... It's funny. It's like our anger about anything is all about some sorrow that we feel in ourselves. And so, yeah, yes. And, and it's it's deep. It's in our heart, you know. You want to go there. You want to actually look at the circumstance and, and acknowledge it. You know... I think so-and-so is just a real asshole, you know. We don't want to just see that, acknowledge it. and then look at it you know, and, and look at them, And, and you, know, and in a moment like that, you can reflect. You know You can just say, well, you know, I don't know why they're that way. I have no idea but, but clearly they're suffering, or they wouldn't act this way. And you know, when you look around at people, a lot of times you just see there's so much sorrow and so much difficulty, and so many people just suffer a lot. And so when you when you recognize that in them, there's a softening. You know, of course the mind is going, I don't care, I, I still think they're an asshole. You know? And so you know, they keep looking, they keep looking, and and maybe not just. In this particular thing, you know, you, you, you let it be, but it's a stance. It's like it's, it's sort of like we are training our attention to do something different. Normally we just forget all about it. Ah, go home and have a couple of drinks and be done with it, you know. But in fact, reflecting on it is so useful. Just to reflect on it and see. And sometimes, you know, you get to a point where, okay, I'm done with this. And then you have your drink, you know. But then the next time is a new one. And you do the same thing. And it's it's a process. And you just keep doing that. And you find after a while that the discernment is greater. And it's because there is kindness in this. You're you're willing to go back to this circumstance even though it's anger, even though it's rage. You're willing to go back to it and and contemplate it. Yeah. Does that help? Yes. And in the moment,
1: it's still good to kind of turn away from it.
0: Sometimes in the moment, that's all you got. you got to turn away from it. But, you know, it's an acknowledging that that's what's taking place. And you're acknowledging the fact that, wow, i got some stuff here. And, and I, I have a, a student that uh, I'm telling you, this is his big thing. You know, he's like very clear in so many ways. But this is his issue, but he's working with it, he's softened just since we've been having a little correspondence, and he started to soften.
1: I might make one other comment. Um, the term emptiness, I was in the workshop yesterday, and there was some discussion that it also kind of means
0: fullness. Yes.
1: Or kind of a, a, a root uh, Sanskrit term that was like swollen or like swelling. And I found that very comforting. Because uh, emptiness is so empty. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's a Buddhist thing. They're a little bit obscure. I about when I see, when I look into people's eyes, I I don't, when you say you saw emptiness, I see a very fullness. I I see a very presence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know? Well, here's the
0: funny thing. Now, for me, I had to go through that. I had to go through seeing emptiness in eyes. And I did this, and it went on for months. I, I just saw emptiness. I mean, it, but it wasn't a sad thing, because it was like, I'm seeing the movement, all of this incredible stuff going on, yet when I look in the eye, there's nobody there. But, But yet now, that's not happening. It was, and what we discover on the path is that there are all these little stages, these little, little openings, and they show themselves, in, and for each of us it's different. They show themselves in a certain way, and, and then we go into that, and then it shows us something more. And then, if we don't turn away, and we go into that, then it opens some more. And that really, but this whole thing of emptiness, emptiness of the fullness of consciousness. So it's the emptiness, in other words, whatever you see, you know, you are looking at the totality of being, just now. Whatever you see, you are looking at it all. There is nothing else. Yes?
1: <clears throat> you said, what about the staining of the eyes or the,
0: the soul? Oh well, yeah, that's a good staining. I like that. <laughs> and in fact, it's true, because when you when you look in the eyes and you see emptiness, you are looking at the soul. You are looking at the truth. You are looking into emptiness. You see, and emptiness is fullness. Just like what we were just saying. It's like you are looking at the totality. it all. At the same time, you're looking at your friend. You're talking to your friend and and then you glimpse this and it has this tremendous, you know, your your little mind just kind of melts and sees emptiness. But then at the same time, you see, nothing has changed. You're, You're still having the same conversation, but things are different for you the more you see. It's like, it's sort of like, the, the, you've, you've gone your whole life you've never experienced the death of a loved one and suddenly one day you've had the loss of, of a dear friend or a, a, your, love, your lover or someone in your life that's very close to you and with that experience you'll never see anything the same if you really allow yourself to be with it it will change everything Yes,
2: Mark. I, had a, I don't want to say this is profound, but a really interesting experience. Um, my father now has dementia, and and it's uh, it's very much the case that sometimes he's he's kind of somewhat there, and sometimes he's just really not there. And you can tell he's not there, and he can't track things very well. And there's a particular picture of him from probably 30 years ago, standing next to my brother, that I really liked, because he had this kind of nice smile on his face, and he had this sharp, sharp present look in his eye. You know, it just looked like he really epitomized the best of my dad, and he was really on top of his game, you know. And I really liked, I always liked that particular picture. And last time I was in Florida, I took a picture of him standing in the kitchen with my mother. And I just recently looked at the picture, and he had that same look as the one from, you know, 30 whatever years ago with my brother. And I looked at this picture, and I thought, oh my God, I've been deceived all this time. It's just a mask, he's not there. But he sure looks like it. You know, it's almost like just putting that thing out front, like that kind of quizzical exactly. little smile. Yeah. And it shocked me. I felt like I'd been deceived all this time. And then, yes. You know?
0: <laughs> yes, I know, I know that feeling well. Okay, so let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stick around and uh, have some tea. And until we meet again, peace to you all.